Hello, and welcome to uh, Wasps and Wigs, a presidential history podcast. I don't know. I'm just riffing right now. <laughs> That's not bad. Yeah, Wasps and Wigs. Wasps in Wigs, too. Yes, Either wasps way, it could See, I thought it would go like Sex and the City or Sex in the City. It basically did right, goes yeah, the Right, yeah, exactly. It could be a Mandela effect for people from years in the future. Yeah, we'll figure something else out later. Welcome to Hell of Presidents, a U.S. presidential history podcast. I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Matt Chrisman. This is episode two, The Era of Bad Vibes. And here we are at the end of the Washington administration. We've got a dang country, we've established a presidency, and we're moving forward with this whole little project we have here. But first, let's take a quick glimpse into the future. In late January 1825, a Philadelphia newspaper published a letter with a sensational allegation about the Speaker of the House, Henry Clay. Quote, the friends of Mr. Clay have hinted that they, like the Swiss, would fight for those who pay best. <laughs> the paper was alleging that Clay and his allies had struck an unfair deal, a kind of corrupt bargain. Hmm. With John Quincy Adams, quote, should this unholy coalition prevail, Clay is to be appointed Secretary of State. Clay quickly took to a D.C. newspaper to denounce the author as a liar and even challenge him to a duel. Hell yeah, Henry. Get those guns. But a little more than a week later, he would commit one of the single biggest blunders in American political history and prove the accusations correct in action, if not intent. The presidential election of 1824 had ended in the first for the young nation, an election with no clear winner. Clay had finished fourth in the Electoral College behind Treasury Secretary William H. Crawford. Like, who the fuck knows who that is? And General Andrew Jackson, the frontier hero of Battle of New Orleans, and of course also Secretary of State John Quincy Adams. The election was thrown to the House of Representatives to decide. And though it would appear Clay, as Speaker, would hold some sway, three states he had won the election had already pledged to support for Adams. And after Adams and his ally Daniel Webster were able to secure the votes of Maryland and crucial New York State, uh -huh. the vote was sealed. John Quincy Adams, son of the second president John Adams, would become the sixth president of the United States. This despite Andrew Jackson having achieved a commanding plurality in both electoral and popular votes. And here's where Clay fucks up. Despite not actually making a formal arrangement, Adams offered Clay secretary of state anyway, and he accepted even if he had never intended, the corrupt bargain was fulfilled. Andrew Jackson would later fume, quote, The Judas of the West has closed the contract and will receive his 30 pieces of silver. His end will be the same. By which I can only imagine he's referring to the biblical thing of Judas wandering into a field and exploding by being pure evil. Yeah, something like that. Or, yeah. or hanging himself. Yeah, I think that's I in there too. Uh, I just want to say, to defend Henry Clay, who... Obviously, a problematic figure, as all 19th century politicians go. But to my mind, one of the less bad of those Senate leaders, compared to a guy like John C. Calhoun, Monster. okay? Demon. Uh, uh, who is one of history's most demonic entities. Uh, fucking Henry Clay is, is a fucking statesman. And here's the thing. He would have been any of their fucking secretary of state. 
They would have made everyone, anyone who would have won would have made him Secretary of State because he actually had, among those, uh, the main figures in Congress at the time, he actually had a significant amount of foreign experience. He had helped negotiate the Treaty of Ghent with John Quincy Adams, by the way. And forgetting that fact that he was the obvious choice to be Secretary of State, even if you don't accept that, he and Adams shared identical politics. They had the exact same vision for what America's foreign policy and domestic policy should. Maintaining westward expansion, but at a controlled pace, maintaining a protective tariff for industry, and investing in domestic infrastructure. They were all on the same page on that, and they were all on the same page in foreign affairs as well. So making him Secretary of State and, and essentially anointing him as like the continuer of the, the Dem- at that point still the Republican Party tradition, because Secretary of State was considered like the launching pad to uh, the presidency, more so than the vice presidency. And it made sense ideologically in terms of who had the experience. But and honestly, it would probably have not have been that big a deal if it wasn't for the fact that John Quincy Adams was unknowingly stepping off of the cliff of the era of good feeling and into the abyss of the emergence of the second party system. You know what? The the single funniest thing of the way the government functioned at this time is the idea that the vice president was just the loser of the election. Can you imagine if Donald Trump was the vice president right now? I love it. I love it. It would be so awesome. <laughs> but that's the this is an, it, this is the absurdity of an institution created on the assumption that factions and parties would not emerge, and the reality that the structure they'd created, given the conditions of clashing interests at the top of the emerging, contrasting modes of production in the South and North, were going to necessitate parties. And and the the proof that these guys realized they were in over their head quickly is how quickly they changed this. Yes. They, they very quickly said, oh, shit, that doesn't work. Even <laughs> while they still held on to the dream that parties were a transient phenomenon and not inherent to the system, they were already changing the Constitution to recognize the fact that that was the case. But they just couldn't admit it because that destroys the fiction of regulatory restrictions on power. But to get back to Clay, the taint of that corruption would follow him for the rest of his career. It's insane, this guy's taint. And as you're saying that you think that it's a kind of an unfair mark, the real thing is it's a political blunder. He didn't actually do anything wrong. He did bungle it. He didn't have but to be. he appeared to do something wrong, which is worse yeah. than actually doing something wrong. It's true. And here, so we begin an ugly end to the so-called era of good feelings. For over two decades, the presidency had been held by a seemingly easygoing popular consensus of individuals allied with the Democrat-Republican Party formed in the mold of Thomas Jefferson. But as J.Q. Adams, J.Q.A., as I'll call him throughout this. Not J.Q.I., that's a different thing. Yes. You go to Pornhub. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, takes the reins. He finds himself leading a dead consensus, one that had fermented all kinds of antipathies and countervailing forces. It was, in fact, not an era of good feelings, but an era of bad vibes. So... If JQA would end up as the last of this era of Democrat Republicans, how did he end up holding the hot potato of failure? This age, going from Adams to Jefferson to Madison Monroe, is basically a process of making copies of copies, demunized versions of previous leaders. All men were members of the founding generation of Americans, but if Washington was King Arthur, these were his round table of knights. The story of this time is the slow but sure destruction of the Federalists as a national political force and the ascendancy of the Jeffersonian Democrats. 
So let's back up and talk about these guys, starting with, as I like to call him, the deuce, John Adams. <laughs> oh, boy. Left holding the bag of party politics after uh, George Washington just pieced out on the bill. Uh, <laughs> you, you can take care of this, right, John? Yeah. You got this, right, Johnny? Uh, John Adams served as the second president from 1797 to 1801. He was a Boston lawyer whose family was and would be insinuated among American upper crust for like 200 years. Uh, there are Adams all over 17th, 18th, and 19th century American history. Oh, yeah. Henry, Charles Francis, they're all over the place. Uh, Gomez. <laughs> uh, Adams was Washington's veep for the first for both his first turns. and thus, Had a horrible time. Yes. Hated it. He's the one who said the least essential position ever created, right? Yep. Yep. Rated true to this day. <laughs> and thus, Adams was Washington's natural successor, despite not enjoying rock-solid support among Federalists nationally. Opposing Adams in the election of 1796 was Thomas Jefferson, who was, as with Washington, the only national figure with the clout and credibility of the founding generation to synthesize a national party around him. Adams barely eked out a win in the Electoral College, keeping Federalists in the president's house for four more years. Yes. And I just have an aside here about how batshit the election system was at the time. It's amazing that this project worked at all or maintained any kind of legitimacy looking at how these elections were run. Uh, a handful of states appointed electors by just by their state legislators, some by votes for electors within districts within states. Uh, some would elect electoral delegates within districts, and then those delegates would go and elect state electors. Massachusetts had its own arcane system going. Like the fact that there was any kind of national legitimacy to this project. Wild. When you could just like go to a home state and be like, so what do you, uh, what, what are we going to do? Pick a name out of a hat for the president? Yeah. Just and those five the guys. People making there? those decisions are a fragment, a shard of the greater, not just population, obviously, uh, black slaves and, and Native Americans and all women, but white men too. A fraction of mostly property owners with property ownership requirements varying from state to state. And you're going to see a process of democratization of those states and their electoral systems, but it is not even. It kind of goes with the flow where it moves from the places where there's a high concentration of capital, basically, that allows for the creation of a dominant political structure that is able to like hoard power for itself and places where there isn't a lot of concentrated capital. Where there's not a lot of concentrated capital, you see those property restrictions going down faster. You see more people getting involved in voting and eventually voting for president. <laughs> I can imagine that. So Adams gets in there as the first prez from a contested election, the first prez firmly representing a party in a now coherent two-party system. The part of his term we really want to underscore here is probably the quasi-war with France, and specifically the Alien and Sedition Acts. Matt, do you want to just do a quick rundown of the quasi-war? Oh, yeah. So one of the great fault lines in American domestic politics that helped shape the emergence of the Democrat, Republicans, and the Federalists was the response to the French Revolution. Whose side do you take? Because Europe was shortly in open warfare. France versus the continent and England, our former uh, overlord, our most close cultural and trading partner. Who, what do we, which side are you on? Is the question that, yes. that was asked. And the presiding sentiment among the yeomanry was a sympathy for the revolutionary French Republic. This was a country that had literally helped us win our independence and now was seeking independence on their own. How could we not accept that as... It was the uh, revolutionary bro code. Exactly. But Federalists concentrated in the Northeast and, and deeply financially invested in trade with England. This is the thing that really drives all of it. And the resulting class position that saw the multitudes 
the throngs, the, the American sans culotte as a threat, uh, they're also uh, just ideologically supported uh, the peaceful island of tea-sipping bankers <laughs> over the rest of uh, uh, population. It was basically Woodstock over there with a bunch of dirty fucking hippies with pitchforks. They didn't even have the right kind of pants. No pants? My God! <laughs> if you're sitting by Boston Common with your fancy brick house, that is horrifying to you. So, And there was a, the first consul, by the way, to the U.S. from a revolutionary France, a guy uh, named Genet, who went by the term Citizen Genet, went around the country whipping up support for the French Revolution against England. And anyway, this split defines domestically a lot of the conflict between the Federalists and the, and the uh, Republicans. And the Washington policy was strict neutrality, with the Federalists pushing preference for England, the uh, Democrats pushing for recognition of France. Washington split the middle, pissing them both off. One of the reasons <laughs> that he died bitter and bloodless. <laughs> Adams inherits this conflict, and now... What you have more than anything, uh, especially once the uh, the revolution gets bloody, a lot of the support in America kind of went away. People are like, ooh, ooh, ooh. don't like this uh, this uh, this blade thing they're dropping yeah, on we, people. Yeah, we, we we're more we're more about killing Indians, not other white people. This is a little <laughs> it's a little sus. Now though, the pressure is coming from the Federalists who demand a, a, a war with France, who was ostensibly because the French Navy was interdicting American commerce on the high seas, and they demanded war. And Adams split the difference once again and declares this unofficial uh, naval conflict with the French Navy. And it's during this period at the domestic hostility to England flares up again. And help, with the help of guys like Jefferson, who are creating a partisan press around the country staffed by ink-stained wretches whose only job was to whip up popular opinion against the Federalist Party and against the, the, the federal government. Uh, and the, that led to this uh, huge outbreak of slanderous, positively slanderous <laughs> verbiage in the Democratic press hurled at poor uh, John Adams, a man who did not expect that after what George Washington had been able to expect as the dignity in, in, of the office for so long. And he reacted and the Federalists reacted by uh, dropping the hammer. It's funny that, uh, you know, people complain about, you know, fake news media and the media being so, so mean to me. They're so mean to me now when like, it, in, you know, 1796, literally any time a politician did anything, there was somebody in the opposing press to say that they were a traitor of the highest order. A traitor, eh? a hermaphrodite, <laughs> yes. they called uh, John Adams. And of course, every bit of gossip and slander yes. thrown across the bow without any consideration for veracity. So we'll talk more about that in a bonus episode, the media and the president we can go way absolutely into that. Yes. no 100% I mean that's how we have now a fully mediated presidency yeah, yeah. so Adams had always been a bit of a backbencher uh, so he reveled in some of this new pro-war attention the anti-English spirit that you were just said was getting riled up he even appeared publicly wearing military regalia and carrying a sword around which I yep. find a very funny image Especially if your image of Adams is, of course, of Paul Giamatti. As uh, it must be. Give Paul Giamatti a sword. <laughs> In response to edging up on this war with France, Adams, goaded on by congressional federalists, passed the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798. So to manage these growing contradictions in actual forces between these parties, between the British allied federalist elite and the more French-facing Democratic Republicans, the Federalists decided to just kind of make it illegal to insult them. The You can't be mean to me act. We'll just make posts illegal. They were laying down the ban hammer. Yeah, John Adams essentially said, mods, mods. The broad, vaguely worded sedition bill basically attempted to replace persuasion 
and this national mythology of unity uh, embodied just two years earlier with Washington with outright political force. Because all of that revolutionary patina, that, that solidarity, that, that sense of social obligation and, and public virtue that they thought was going to carry the government through its entire existence started wearing off almost immediately. Yes. And it was really just the, the shining aura of Washington that allowed it to last as long as it did before it broke down. Because yeah. John Adams is not George Washington. I mean, no. you could argue he's more crucial to the revolution, you know, was there to argue. As If you saw the John Adams miniseries, he was one of the guys who argued the uh, Continental Congress into declaring independence. That's very important. While I live, let me have a country, a free country. Anybody could sit on a horse with a fucking stick like George Washington did, uh, but he did not have the aura. He was a regional figure, a, a st strictly regional figure in the way that uh, Washington wasn't. And he was even and in a time when politics really was personal because very few people actually participated in politics. These guys literally all knew each other. Yeah. Uh, his personal reputation was as a snappy, uh, vain, arrogant prick. Obnoxious and disliked, as the a song from 1776 goes. Well, if I'm the one to do it, they'll run their quill pens through it. I'm obnoxious and disliked, you know that, sir. Yes, I know. So he already had a hard row to hoe, and now coming into a partisan snake pit and trying to negotiate this conflict with Europe without stepping into it and, and, and escalating into a, a war that the United States, still in its infancy, very well could lose and lose its independence... Uh, he was not the man. He, he could no longer hold the facade because the facade was really the whole thing. It was a Potemkin regime and it immediately fell apart. And Jefferson sensed that this was a weakness and that it is probably a losing proposition. He wrote to his ally, John Taylor, quote, a little patience and we shall see the reign of witches pass over their spells dissolve and the people recovering their true sight, restore their government to its true principles. The prosecution of the Sedition Acts would indeed become almost immediately preposterous, uh, leading to some embarrassing stories like that of Luther Baldwin, a resident of Newark, New Jersey, who got sent to federal prison for telling a barkeep he wouldn't mind if Adams got shot, quote, throw his arse. <laughs> they could pop a cap at him, but I'd say nothing. Sir, you have to go to prison. Uh, so, yeah, and those stories like that became, you know, semi-national news and made them all look ridiculous. And Jefferson was right. He won the election in 1800, making Adams the first presidential loser. Bye-bye, Adams. Bye-bye. And it must be noted, one of the things that undermined Adams is that because he tried to steer this middle course between escalating with France and you know maintaining strict neutrality, and he didn't give in to the Hamiltonians, because Hamilton was still there for a lot of this banging on a gong, saying, no, no, declare war with France. Raise a domestic army. Give them all cool uniforms. Like, let's escalate to a conflict with, like, uh, the rabble and the Southerners, the Southern slave power. And let's let's just have this out right now, basically. And Adams was like, No, no, I have a. I still think that there's something other than factional power here because I am a mystified. I'm one of the gods. I. I why would I think any otherwise? And so the Federalists, the hardcore Federalists, by the election, hated him. And some of them voted for Jefferson <laughs> just to own Adams. Adams would later write of his defeat, speaking to this very thing, maybe having a little self-reflection. Quote, no party that ever existed knew itself so little or so vainly overrated its own influence and popularity as ours. And yep. later, quote, none ever understood so ill the cause of its own power or so wantonly destroyed them. The reason is... We have no Americans in America, 
The Federalists have been no more Americans than the Antis. There would never be another Federalist president. Yep. Uh, it's it, The thing is, is that it was a f- regional party, for one thing. Of It was an, a party of northern finance, which was infinite at that point. And that meant that population-wise, it, was, it didn't have, like, we talk about how, you know, this mode of production created this culture at these cities, but there's still a lot of people out there farming in those northern states, and they fucking hate these guys. And the Federalists hate them back. The Federalists were the party opposed to expanding the franchise and maintaining property requirements. Like, there was an anti-democratic edge to this. They were the party of modernization and progress, certainly. They were the party who, you know, um, you could imagine them mismanaging uh, America through a process of like democratization with justice that like it like the, the Edward Bernstein vision of like uh, of uh, revisionist socialism being uh, carried out nonviolently. Mm-hmm. You could imagine the Federalists and who and the ones who came after that maybe managing that. But part of that is that they fucking had nothing but contempt for the fucking rubes out there in the hinterland, and they knew that, and they had no popular support. Their popular support was that they were necessary to actually sinew the thing together, to stitch the monster together. But the thing they were creating was going to immediately be horrifying to the people who didn't want it, even though they needed it. That was the thing. The Federalists know what was necessary to actually make a functioning government, to put a real engine in this thing. But that was going to horrify the people when they built it. And as soon as they created it and everyone stood back, everyone was. And and that's why the Federalists essentially fixated on... uh, for a while, secession. That became their, the answer to their question of how to deal with the fact that nobody really likes us. So, Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, author of the Declaration of Independence, which I like to think of as the world's first medium post, the ultimate uh, so-I-wrote-a-thing. <laughs> uh, Jefferson was the lead engineer of the AAA gaming project that was the USA. A lot of crunch hours. Writing the software, then buying the hardware to make the whole thing run. Yeah. As Washington had been the singular figure with the credibility to embody the office of president, Jefferson was the one figure with the national credibility to embody the Democrat-Republican project. And as such, his main motivation was managing the Yeoman Farmer Coalition, which takes us to his most consequential act, the Louisiana Purchase. Oh, yeah. Hey, you know that shit I said about how uh, the government basically can't do anything? Uh, it can unilaterally, the president can unilaterally double the size of the country, though. He can, he do, can that do that one thing. That's Just that on one there. thing. He can't build a post office, <laughs> but he can do that. Okay. Okay, jo- Okay, TJ. Uh, the enormous tract of land, he's got huge tracts of huge. land. Huge. Huge. Tracks of land. 530 million acres was a French possession. Though Napoleon had flirted with reestablishing a strong French presence in the New World, France's inability to control or put down the ongoing slave revolt in Haiti influenced him to part with the land. And not to digress too much, yes. but I know this period is a historical what-if you like thinking about, Matt. It just it gets me. because And Napoleon knew it, too. On, on St. Helena, when he was just... Going over all his fuck ups and trying to figure out how he could how he could have restart if he could only re- restart the game at some point. <laughs> he was looking through uh, his save files. Uh, what well, he recognized that one of his biggest mistakes was trying to reassert French rule over uh, Haiti and to reestablish slavery instead of making an alliance with the regime of Toussaint Louverture, accepting the end of slavery as a fait accompli and making a deal. Because what he wanted to do, the reason he sent the the uh, Leclerc ex- expedition to put it down was because he wanted to try to 
get around the North Sea dominance of the British Navy by turning the Caribbean into a French lake. And the failure of that project led him to sell Louisiana. But if he'd made a deal, if he'd made a deal with Toussaint, and then he sends an army, maybe, into French Louisiana, he could have taken the southern tier of the early United States without, what were we going to do about it? <laughs> we were still arguing about whether to build that goddamn post office I was talking about. <laughs> Everybody's calling each other hermaphrodites. <laughs> but because he bungled, because he listened to Josephine, his, his uh, plantation-born uh, wife, uh, he made the bungle, and it led to him having to sell the thing. And there was Jefferson like, ooh, endless tracts of land for me to continue my fantasy of- uh, Every man a farmer. The, the baronless barons populating the countryside. Sign me up, please. Yes. What if? What if the French enslave uh, in D-Day of Louisiana had just toppled Ooh, America in the beginning? Mm, just going and, and their army growing at every place they yeah. stop at. Oh, man. Uh, we love to think about it. So Jefferson, somewhat hypocritically, as you just laid out, uh, took the opportunity when the French offered and grabbed this land, despite Federalist protestations. To Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans, this more or less had to be done to provide area for his yeoman farmer political culture. Again, it's the free real estate. It's free real estate. It's that free real estate, baby. It's an assurance not only to his future, but the viability of Jefferson's whole political project. Once again, the entire push and pull of American politics is against the necessity of capital accumulation and, and the creation of like a state around that formation to, to support it and to thrive in that competition, in the competition with the other states. That's like defining the, 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 the operating conditions for this organism. Uh, but the people aren't going to like it because it involves being suborned to a central authority, which they don't want, which is the opposite of their ideology. The thing that has driven them through the continent to this point and has organized the society that they've built. So at every point, they have to do things that are hypothetically against everything they stand for. And eventually, once they get past the point where they can pass the buck politically, like letting the Federalists do all the dirty work in those first uh, 12 years. That was very nice. That was very helpful. They get to keep their hands clean. But now they can't. And what they do is they just decide to make shit up. And what Jefferson made up is, uh, actually, I can't do that. Why? Well, because you need to be able to do that. You don't need to be able to do that other stuff. It's the way libertarians to this day say, well, you need to have a military and you need to have a police force, but you can't spend any money on anything else. These are arbitrary yeah. lines that are drawn to maintain the fiction of the of the ideology, which really is there to support the interests of big landowners, the elites. Before we move on from this, I think it is important to note that it wasn't really an outright purchase of land, but more of a right to claim land from the indigenous people who live there without the interference of other colonial powers. But Matt, as you said in the last episode, the knowledge that there was no indigenous power that could meaningfully oppose expansion affected how the Americans in power thought about this, affected their calculation. Yep. It's just interesting to note that as far as modern Americans receive the history, the right to dispossess the indigenous people uh, of their land without European in interference and, quote, buying it from France are effectively the same thing. It's the same thing because the, the, the will of those people there, retroactively, obviously, but even in the minds of those people making decisions at the time, was uh, not operative. There was... There was no real resistance that could not, if enough pressure wasn't brought to it, uh, be defeated. And so that meant that they had basically bought the territory, and it was only a matter of question of dealing with yeah. the population within that territory as they had to. So Jefferson leaves office in 1809 and is succeeded by his Secretary of State, James Madison, 
who wins in a landslide, obtaining 70% of the electoral vote in the election of 1808. Madison is a bit of a diminished Jefferson, another Virginian, another rich, well-educated planter, whereas Jefferson had wrote the Declaration of Independence, strong, assertive, clear enunciation of universal human rights and prerogatives, Madison had written the Constitution, which, as we went over in the last episode, is more of a ticky-tacky power-sharing agreement between various types of rich guys in 1780s America. And Madison wrote the whole thing, and he loved every minute of it because he was, this, he was an essential model UN type of nerd. Like the idea, all that, in, all that stuff that makes everyone else feel like their soul is leaving their body, all of those compromises and, and rickety little constructions, he was in his glory. He loved it. Matt, Madison really is the uh, the Martin of the Simpsons of these guys. One hundred percent. Yes, he is Martin. I'd always considered myself rather popular. Madison had been central to the formation of the Democrat Republicans and had, along with Jefferson, led some of the fiercest anti-federalist attacks against Hamilton and his policies in emerging papers like Philadelphia's National Gazette. He was one of those guys who was calling into question the sexual organs of his uh, yep. uh, competitors yep. in the 1790s. What you got down there, yeah. John? What's going on? And in office, he governed to this effect. His, the signature event of Madison's term was the War of 1812. Matt, you want to give a rundown of the War of 1812? They were impressing our semen, okay? <laughs> our semen are being impressed. You, we cannot impress our You will not impress my fucking semen. I will fucking end you if you try to impress my fucking semen. How dare you try to like do card tricks in front of my semen? No, you will not impress my semen at any cost. So that's what you learned in the history book is that... Uh, British, because at that point they were in full-on war with Napoleonic France on the high seas. It was essentially a world war from colonies through everywhere. They fought at one point in India uh, during the French Revolutionary Era. And that meant that American ships were being stopped and American sailors were being pulled off of ships. The British claimed that they were deserted British seamen. But even if that was the case, even if it was the case, it was a, a front to American honor. And that was the signal issue in the political churning realm, the reason that people got upset about it and had passion for it, because this was America's honor being besmirched. We are a young nation. We needed to show them who is boss. But underneath that was the slavering, mouth-watering sight of British Canada. Oh, yes. Right there. Oh, look. Oh. Got, there's another whole half to this continent. There's a other northern half it's of this country. It's Anglos, and they're not ours. We just got all this shit from France for a fucking, a penny, like, yeah. a bunch of Sorry. bottle caps. The British, they're fighting France. They're fighting for their lives. That fucking little bastard might invade at any moment. They can't worry about some more shit. They gave up us. How hard would it be to just march up there, take a couple towns, and they figure, hey, it's... More trouble than it's worth while we're fighting with Napoleon. Yeah. Why not give it a try? And that was those reasonings and, and then the, the, the cultural ferment that made it politically useful to, to try to pursue that agenda led to the, this uh, declaration. And it was violently opposed by the Federalists, who at that point were arguing for a military alliance with Britain against revolutionary France. Uh, and, of course, had no desire to see conflict with our trading partner. And it led to... A, especially since the war did not go well at all in the early stages, because it turns out, oh shit, we are an infant baby <laughs> country with infant baby institutions and a violent author uh, hostility to the kind of centralizing authority that would allow you to raise an army. Raise an army. In 1811, the Bank of the United States, which had been chartered by Alexander Hamilton to be the, the organ for debt and revenue uh, raising and banking for America, was allowed to expire by Madison. 
They didn't renew its charter, which had been for 20 years because they hated the idea of central banking. And then they had to fight a war borrowing money and using ridiculous Byzantine <laughs> financial instruments to be able to get any money to fund this thing. So we did poorly. There was an invasion of Canada that was repulsed after the burning of Toronto. People might not know we did that. Oops, sorry. It was called York at the time. But then that expedition bogged down and had to flee back to Michigan. Meanwhile, there's a British land invasion of the continent of the United States, uh, which leads to a battle in Maryland uh, between the American colonial militias that could be pulled together, led in battle by little James Madison. Martin Prince is the only, to this day, American commander-in-chief to ever actually command troops in battle. As president. And what happened to him? And it's our tiny little fucking stem lord <laughs> dork is the one who did that. The indoor kid of the founding fathers is the one who is actually commanding an army in the field as president. And we got rinsed. <laughs> the, the militias fled like dogs. And it was called the Bladensburg Races because of how quickly the United States broke and ran. And that led to the evacuation of Washington, D.C. And it led the British Expeditionary Force to literally eat Madison's dinner off of his silverware in the White House before they burned it. So while this is happening, the Federalists are so pissed and the constitutional order that they've created and which is now dominated by this faction that really does represent a clear majority of like the political influence and power in the country because the center of gravity is, is moving south and west with expansion away from the north. The, the financial institutions are still there, but like there is creating now a, a, another power center, which is building force against you. And because there's no way to resolve these sort of conflicts within the Constitution in a way that maintains any sense that like there is a national interest being served and not a regional or special one, the only cure is secession. And that's the funny thing about this whole system is that at no point was the unity of the, of the nation before the Civil War taken for granted. Everyone assumed that if this goes against us, we can just walk away. So, as you were just alluding to, domestically, a major effect of the War of 1812 was the complete collapse of the Federalists as a political force. Uh, in this kind of hilarious little escapade, a group of Federalist leaders called a series of secret meetings in late 1814 known as the Hartford Convention. Unified by their opposition to the war and the Democrat-Republican dominance of government, the delegates discussed a series of proposals including outright secession from the Union. And as you were just saying, I'd like to take an aside to just mention how during this era, how often people talked about seceding from the Union, just like at any time. A new embargo, we're going to succeed. Raising some taxes, we're going to secede. Uh, they were uh, wild about that. It was just They're like, going to take their ball and yes. go home at the, at the drop of a hat. Because the stupid system isn't built for this. <laughs> so the guys at the Hartford Convention ended up drafting up this list, demanding amendments to the Constitution, including a repeal of the Three-Fifths Compromise, uh, requiring two-thirds of congressional approval for declarations of war, and preventing consecutive presidents from being from the same states just as a fuck you to Virginia. They were so mad about those for Virginia air sexually. By the way, though, the Three-Fifths Compromise thing, that uh, that often uh, appears as part of like the Federalists' part of their array of anti-democratic policies but this is them pointing out that hey part of the reason that you guys are so dominant in this politics isn't really having to do with winning these elections it's because they're literally weighted for you who own people who have human beings 
who are not supposed to be part of our polity, and yet you get to count yes. some of them. How the fuck does that work? I can get putting that in there to like lure the South back, you know, into the thing. But once you've created a growing concern, that that is an affront to the very notion of a fucking representative government. Yes. It's an absurdity. It it is, you know, one of the things that is most on its face overtly evil to get people to defend something like that as the Southerners would throughout the 19th century is one of the things that, you know, I, I alluded to this last episode and I'll continue talking about it, that attempting to defend these insane institutions will increasingly make the Southerners insane themselves. Because you have to be to make these yes. arguments. And I have to say, though, that like even forgetting the moral dimension of the Three-Fifths Compromise, it was not intellectually defensible, which is far greater of a sin for these debate club dorks. Nerds. Because these guys are all Redditors of the first order. They loved logic and reason. They thought that they built a new, a new house of pure yes. reason in, in the American uh, West. And yet you have this thing right in there that says, uh, actually, these guys are three-fifths of a guy. Three-fifths! Yep. They're three-fifths of a guy. And and it's like you you bury it you get down past the thinnest layer of sediment and oh this is just an exertion yes. of power the thing that we are trying to uh, argue is not what dominates the affairs of men this is all virtue it's all virtue they talked about it in terms of sin and like that's why the the guys who wrote this stuff did hate slavery more than anything because it made it harder to have their palace of reason and that's why they operated the way they did under a delusion that oh slavery will die out economically. Mm-hmm. There's no way we're going to design a way, uh, figure out a way with a machine, perhaps, to effectively like, uh, quadruple you know, the output cotton yeah. and make it wildly, wildly profitable to have slaves. Because they were depleting the, all the land in like northern Virginia. It was all fucking depleted by that yes. time by tobacco. They were already losing their ability to do plantation agriculture in like the, the Piedmont. So they assumed, oh, good, it'll go away. We can problem, fix the problem itself. But no, it sticks around. Banco's ghost. Well, let's finish up with these Hartford guys. Because they draft up their little resolution uh, and they send their delegates down marching into D.C. to put it in front of the Democrat Republicans and say, these are the demands of the Federalists. This is how we're going to fix this. But as soon as they get to Washington, D.C. is basically the same moment that news of a new character, General Andrew Jackson's stunning victory over the British in the Battle of New Orleans makes its way to New York. And they fired our guns and the British kept it coming, but there wasn't as many as there was a while ago. Fired once more and they took the run down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. That was the number one hit of 1961. Johnny Horton, the Battle of New Orleans. So this is maybe the biggest, like one of the biggest curb your enthusiasm moments in American history is these disgruntled Federalists thinking that they have this trump card of reserving their power, walking into D.C. the moment that somebody walks up with a broadsheet saying, guess what? General Jackson just whooped their asses in New Orleans, and now the entire yep. country loves that we did the war, loves that we yep. won. Yep. Even though, even though, as many people know, it happened after the Treaty of Ghent had been signed, yes. after the war was over, which even though the invasion of, of New Orleans had been an attempt by the British to get a better negotiating position, they were not, they didn't want to take over the U.S. They wanted over with it. They they just got done with the fucking Napoleonic War. They they wanted to make a deal, and that was just a way to get a better deal. But they had, they were already, it had gone so well, the negotiations, that uh, that they were already there before it even got there. But it obviously, if it had gone differently, maybe they would have reopened negotiations. But it was one way or the other a huge waste, a huge disgusting waste of life. But 
It was something that took a war that had been a disaster and a fiasco and a failure by the Madison administration and turned it into a glorious victory, a punch to the nose of the old colonial overpowered lords. Let them know that we're America's a real country because we won a couple of battles. Yes. Even though we did failed to get Canada, which was the whole point. And they just said, okay, we'll stop impressing your seamen, which the war, Napoleonic Wars are over. It's not even a fucking issue anymore. Uh, well, at least our seamen would no longer be impressed. They don't impress me much. And I twain. But anyway, this makes this whole thing makes the uh, this Federalist delegation, who were months ago threatening secession of the Northeastern states, yep. look like a bunch of assholes, uh, if not outright traitors, and effectively ends federalism as a national political project. Bye-bye. Goodbye, Federalists, America's first failed party. Bye-bye. By the way, imagine if that had happened to the Democrats after the yeah. Civil War. Wouldn't that have yes. been nice? I mean, wouldn't that have made sense, mm-hmm. too? I mean, my God, all they did was have a couple of meetings in a hotel. These guys killed 300,000 Northern Americans. Oh, by the way, remember that Bank of the United States that they allowed to go unchartered in 1811? Uh, Yeah. yeah, After the war in 1816, they uh, re-enchartered a second Bank of the United States because they realized, oh, you need to do that to have a fucking army and to be able to have a country. Wait, I thought they hated those. The Democrat Republicans take one of the foundational arguments that they have about like where tyranny comes from and say, yeah, my bad. <laughs> Whoops. Sorry. So by 1816, the Democrat Republicans were operating a firm consensus. Opposition was basically non-existent. And Madison's Secretary of State, James Monroe, won the nomination in an eventual election with 84% of the electoral vote. Monroe was another Virginian from a wealthy planter family. And you know, the one thing you can really say about the Democrat-Republican presidents is how well they represented their stated values of opposing those dastardly Federalists and their entrenched will towards aristocracy. Yeah, how dare they? And Matt Monroe is another copy of a copy. He is he is more tangentially related to the de- revolutionary generation than any of them. He is a less of a national reputation. He is a less charismatic figure, less intellectually dynamic. Just in general, uh, yeah, uh, the dud, the 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 fourteenth Habsburg of the of the Virginia dynasty. That being said. Monroe's two terms are the core of what we know as this era of good feelings. Uh, We're in the chill-out tent of early American statehood. Uh, With the War of 1812 over, the president elected with overwhelming electoral support were in this breath between conflicts where the president can finally just be a figurehead. He can vibe. He can vibe. The Congress can take over its job of doing most of the real power, which was what these guys all assumed would be the case. The presidency was just kind of there to wave... In the cabin, there was uh, these these powers that were accruing to him. Were not, that was not what they really wanted. So a chance to put the brake on was very much appreciated. And Monroe did like during his term go on like a goodwill tour where he just like went <laughs> around and like waved at people and was like, "Hey, yes, it's me, it's I the did. president. We all love the president, Yay. don't we?" Yeah. Uh, Monroe, of course, perhaps best known for his doctrine. Gotta love the doctrine, the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, basically calling shotgun on the rest of the continent and extending indefinitely what Jefferson started with the Louisiana Purchase. Yeah. And if even among ex-Federalists at this point, I guess you call it the right wing of, I don't think that really applies, but just for ease's sake, the right wing of the uh, of the Republican Party uh, who weren't necessarily keen on uh, exp- uh, like 
taking over South America, they recognized the sovereignty of the new post-Spanish republics there as like sister republics and wanted to make sure that they didn't get fucked with by a colonial power now that they were independent. The way that they had afraid they were so afraid would have happened to the US if they'd gotten into the Napoleonic Wars. Thus beginning a long and never-ending tradition of America decidedly attempting to not fuck with South American republics. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, a, a, a noble doctrine that will never change. So that was a fucking lie. He also presided over the Missouri Compromise, allowing admission into the Union of Missouri as a slave state, but preventing the establishment of slavery above the 3630 parallel, which is Missouri's southern border. And they also cut Maine off of Massachusetts and said, well, that'll be yeah. a state too, so it evens out in the south. Um, congrats to future... Uh, novelist Stephen King for getting a homeland. Uh, it was the first of several great 19th century compromises attempting to negotiate the conflict over expanding slavery, which is a very important concept. Matt, do you want to fill in why not just maintaining slavery, but expanding it was so important and how this created conflict with the North? Well, uh, a lot of it comes down to the fact that slaves are unlike other capital, even though they're treated as capital, in that they reproduce and that they make more themselves through and by doing that over time that will create a, a, a more mouths to feed than a profit can be made by the, their labor the only way to deal with that is by having a market to vent off excess slaves through sale and that meant in the colonial generation uh, uh, the piedmont and northern tobacco planters selling slaves into the more fertile regions in the Carolinas. But over time, that would depend on selling slaves into the Mississippi Delta. And at every point, the need for more land, for more cultivation, for more market for slaves grew. That is why uh, the United States, with relatively little, little controversy during this period, banned the slave trade because they wanted to maintain control over the supply. I know this is all very awful, to talk about it this way, but this is the underlying economic logic that drove the need for more slave uh, territory. Yeah, and like applying these cold, dehumanizing economic calculations to people is yeah. one of the things that's so brutal about it. But hey, it's a compromise. Uh, Monroe ran for re-election in 1820 uncontested. The last time that would happen in American history. Good yep. vibes, man. Let's let those good times roll. Everyone forever. is riding the wave, baby. Uh, the end to parties. Uh, no, the end to disputes. Uh, and surely when 1824 rolls around, there'll be no big contests, no hurt feelings, no bitter accusations, no uh, corrupt bargains of any kind. Uh, Can't happen. How would that occur? Which brings us to the guy holding the hot potato, John Quincy Adams. Matt. Johnny Boy, JQA. You want to talk about how Madison was a nerd. Talk, uh, John Quincy Adams, an original spring break nerd, if ever there was one. So John Quincy Adams was, of course, the son, you might have guessed, of John Adams, the founding father. He grew up on the farm. Uh, he was a child during the Revolution. He went with his father to France and then Holland to do diplomacy when Adams was trying to get those countries to come into the uh, revolutionary war on the side of uh, the colonists. Uh, he even uh, traveled as a, as a young man to the court of Alexander in St. Petersburg. And he came back and he was among that 
small sliver of politicians to emerge whose prominence came due to their position relative to the founding generation. So he was essentially, by his adulthood, he was the, um, the closest thing there was to a standard bearer for the old Federalist ideas, the old party in Massachusetts. And he became a, uh, he was minister to Russia. So when he comes back to the U.S., he becomes a lawyer, becomes a prosperous Boston lawyer, very quickly is courted by the Federalists to run for office. He is a, uh, he is a member of the House. He is a senator from Massachusetts. And it is while he's in the Senate that uh, John Quincy Adams really does create his own identity on the national stage and, and makes it possible for him to escape from the wreckage of federalism intact. And it is that under, during the Jefferson administration, part of the escalation of conflict with England was an embargo that Jefferson supported as part of the, the uh, contest against seaman impressment and against America's honor being besmirched on the high seas. This was something that the Federalists as a party roundly rejected. The Essex Junto, which was the <laughs> group of uh, powerful Federalist politicians uh, who ran Massachusetts and who had essentially offered the job of senator to uh, John Quincy Adams, were opposed. But John Quincy thought, you know what? This makes sense. We probably should. We should embargo them. And he voted for the embargo. And it led to him uh, getting his ass kicked out of office. The, the Massachusetts State Senate pulled him out even before his term was over. <laughs> but uh, he, he endeared himself by doing that as one of the good ones for the, the Republicans. He was led into the Republican tent. He was made minister to Russia uh, under, the, under Tsar Alexander. Uh, and then he negotiated with Henry Clay and others the Treaty of Ghent that ended the War of 1812. Uh, and as part of that, his new found diplomatic bona fides, he was made Secretary of State by James Monroe. Yeah. And while he was Secretary of State, he helped codify the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, he was one of the chief architects of it. Uh, and he uh, had a another diplomatic coup when he uh, negotiated the Adams-Onis Treaty, ceding Florida to the United States, which had been a very tricky negotiation, partially because Andrew Jackson, who was at this time uh, an American military commander in the South there, uh, kept invading it and killing people because <laughs> he was a fucking slavering psychopath. And as Secretary of State, uh, he becomes, in the lead up to the 1824 election, the choice of the northern states that didn't have a party anymore. The closest thing they had to a party was Adams, who represented Massachusetts and who held most of their beliefs in internal improvements, in uh, tariffs for industry, in slowing the pace of westward expansion. Uh, in all those respects, he was in the model of like the Federalist politics, but changed by the realities of American political conflict to the point where he now accepted Manifest Destiny he now accepted Western right. expansion. He now accepted many of the precepts of the Democratic Republican Party uh, because he thought of himself as a man not of party but of principle. And that is one thing that kind of propelled him to move away from the party politics as they were emerging and to want to carry on this, what he thought of as the fulfillment of the political system that, that his dad and the others had created. Right. It was now operating correctly. And he was very excited about it. So he thought, all right, now that we've given the baby their bottle, now that we've given them westward expansion, he wrote against the three-fifths compromise and was very, very adamantly opposed to it. And he also was able to do things like look at Madison 
deciding that rechartering the bank and declaring war was constitutional, but he was going to draw the line at like an infrastructure bill. Like, oh, I don't have the ability to do that. And he's like, come on, man, this is all arbitrary. What are you doing? And so he was, he embodied that synthesis. He was the synthetic character, but the party structure still was asserting itself. The desire for a pure strain version of democratic republicanism was asserting itself because, Hey, they were in the driver's seat. Why wouldn't they want to push things further? Uh, and the problem, though, and the reason that Quincy was able to win uh, or even get to a position to win is that that political tradition was running out of gas. The way that Madison Monroe was sort of a, a pale version of the earlier revolutionary generation. Uh, Crawford, the Treasury Secretary, was of Monroe. Crawford was the, the closest thing to a Jefferson of the moment. He was a pure political instrument of the Democratic-Republican machine. He was connected to the Democratic parties in all of the states. He was allied with like Van Buren mm-hmm. in New York, for example. But he was nobody. He didn't have uh, the figure. The, 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 the political vocabulary had sort of lost its punch. Jackson represented the revitalization of the political sort of pageantry. The, 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 uh, the, he is the character who could fill in for the deracinated husks of, of the political leadership of the Democratic Party. He was from the West. He was blooded in battle for the American nation. And so he had a huge command of voters. But then you also had, also from the West, Henry Clay running for president, who was sort of the Western version of Adams. He was coming from that same political tradition, but in, the, in that, those areas where capital was concentrating along merchant lines in the New West as opposed to in the big landowning, although he was a big landowner as well from northern kentucky and those four forces came at blows and oh no there's no way to settle there if you don't get across the line what do you do and nobody got across the line which brings us back of course to the corrupt bargain yep uh settled in the house that puts uh quincy adams in the presidency but stymies and and uh prevents this this momentum towards westward power to this westward revitalization of these institutions in the form of Jackson. Once I was a brakeman on the Connell. I fell in love with the cook, a cross-eyed gal named Sal. So after all that nasty business with the election of 1824, Adams enters the presidency uh, with an ambitious agenda. He supported Clay's American system economic plan, uh, which is this combination, as you were alluding to, of tariffs to protect industry, the national bank to secure commerce and investments in internal improvements to help bring goods to market. Canals, baby. We love our beautiful canals. We love So many canals in the John Quincy Adams administration. He's the king of canals. He was dreaming of it. He was dreaming of a a sweet canal. He wanted a national university, a national observatory, a road from Washington, New Orleans. He felt he would lead a continuation of the Monroe era and tried to pacify divisions by appointing a cabinet of varying political views and geographic origins. Team of rivals, baby. Team of rivals. Always works. But by this time, the Democratic-Republican consensus was basically dead. And JQA's plan faced nearly insurmountable opposition in Congress. 
Congress blocked everything from his proposal to establish a national bankruptcy law to his proposal for a a naval expedition to explore the Pacific Ocean. They wouldn't even let him send some boats to the Pacific to see what was going on out there. Yep, yep. Four nerdy little guys. Despite 25 years of single-party domination of the presidency, uh, the internal contradictions knitting together these groups were proving impossible to overcome. And what John Quincy Adams spent his presidency doing which was a lame duck as soon as it happened. He was doomed. And he even kind of knew that. Was him trying to reason with people purely from a position of what he thought was the greater good, the political virtue. Now, of course, this isn't to say that he was totally virtuous. He represented the interests of northern fucking finance capital with their Dracula-like tendrils uh, across the country. He despised the common man. I mean, that was the whole point of the, uh, quote, American system was just to kind of supercharge this relationship between the southwestern agrarian model and the northern finance capital. That's the point of all those canals, to get the fucking uh, agriculture to the, the ocean. To literally concentrate the capital, to spin it all into these collaborations to suck it out of the land to to get a bank going to turn all that that those goods into money to put it back into the system yeah to to do the tariffs to protect the ag- the the industry on the the continent side it was all like the, the clay's theory was that you know by having a functional economic system that the the far, the yeoman farmers would benefit from having big places to sell their goods but it was all stemming from this yeah. this newly this developing system of finance capital Yep, and so he was contemptuous of democracy, and, and he was uh, he was opposed to any popular expressions of political uh, uh, passion. He found it vulgar. He was a classic patrician. He was like a he was a Cato type guy, uh, but because he was he had grown up in that milieu, he had grown up in that refined culture around capital, as opposed to amongst like the slave driving and amongst the. The, the Indian scalping, you know, uh, uh, Western pioneers living that way creates certain social mores and expectations. And you see with Adams the birth of the modern progressive. Like you, you look at his writings, he was aghast at the massacre of Indians and the poor treatment of Indians. And, and he, um, in his presidency, refused the demands of the Georgia government to cast the Native Americans off of land that they held by treaty. Because he said it's not constitutional to do that. So the Georgians, uh, they actually didn't. He wasn't on the ballot when he ran for re-election in Georgia. They were so pissed at him. Uh, and, but he, are, he was trying to say no. But don't you see? This isn't right. This isn't right in the Constitution. Now, his legalism, as I said, stems from a desire to uh, you know, maintain this system of power and domination. But part of that system is if you're refined enough, you find the, the messiest parts of it unseemly. So you see in Adams the birth of elite liberalism, elite progressive social policy. So he was violently disgusted by slavery. He was appalled by uh, Native Americans being dispossessed of their land, even though these things were part of the system that he stood on top of. And he created elaborate justifications for his own virtue. Uh, and that meant that he thought of politics as a contrast of virtue. So he tried to talk people into this stuff. He said, look, you guys need to do this. It, it really was Martin Prince running against Bart for city for uh, class president. Like, no, no, too much asbestos. Nobody cared. Nobody cared about that. They cared about land. They cared about power. They cared about 
getting money because the majority in America who were politically viable, uh, they were gonna if they were gonna make money on this in this whole American deal, if they were gonna prosper, it was gonna be through land. It wasn't gonna be through getting into the narrow ranks of the professions or get next to formations of money in the cities. They were gonna do it by grabbing some of that continent and bending it to its will, to their will. In that way, JQA uh, exemplifies a constrained presidency, and in many ways he feels like the Obama of his era, a smart and perceptive and relatively humane guy who nonetheless could get nothing done. He occupies a presidency that is hypothetically powerful, but that only holds power in someone channeling a vibrant consensus in the political sphere. Yes, and I would also though say that uh, I'd say John Quincy Adams is way better than Obama because... I think Obama went in knowing he had no mm. power. Like he was going to make the office of presidency and the country vibrant by being there. I think that John Quincy Adams actually thought that maybe you sork in your way to po uh, power and you sork in your way to progress in America. And he found out very quickly that, nope, that's not how it works. And it's amazing that that is still the guiding light of liberalism this much later is that he learned these lessons back in the 1820s, and yet to this day, they are the presiding fantasies of liberals in general. Uh, that maybe if we just make the right arguments, that if we, uh, if we yep. trust the scientists or whatever, that, yeah, that we can yep. convince people uh, that ours is the right and virtuous path, rather than actually marshalling forces of material interest to leverage them into power. And he really couldn't because the material interests that supported him were a fraction of the population engaged in finance, uh, industry, and trade. And that wasn't enough. So he is, for all his well-meaning, a degeneration, a child of a president. And like, let's just take a minute to revel in the fact that for this new Republican country, it takes six presidents to get to the place where we're already putting kids in there uh he is the child yeah. of a president now president himself presiding over an entrenched consensus with no real legitimacy or efficacy things might change but they only really look like decay and decay diminution widespread dissatisfaction under a supposedly benevolent elite consensus by god is that andrew jackson's music Despite losing the 1824 election, Jackson emerges as the consensus response to the domination of the Virginia dynasty. By later in 1825, the same year that the contingent election had took place in the House that put Quincy Adams in charge, Jackson had already been nominated by the Tennessee legislature to run against Adams as president in 1828. The permanent campaign, which went append these guys, what these guys believed. John Quincy Adams was one of those guys who thought it was unseemly to even express interest in a public oh, be office. president me no of course oh well if you insist no. sure jackson represented the bristling of the yeoman farmer under this rotting consensus he was the farmers chafing under the market constraints the farmers who had perhaps received temporary cultural and political concessions but always in the context and under the direction of finance capitalism yep and they were sick of it and and what's that there's a bank again we can get mad at the bank. I thought we were part of the party that hated the bank. Yeah, it's the bank's fault because that there always has to be some sort of wheatstone to rip up your, your uh, hostility to that power that you can't quite place but that you know is, is, is actually controlling you. And it's interesting, though, that there is very little substance to Jackson's re uh, election campaign 
1828. Uh, it w- they didn't have anything they could really say about Adams's tenure, partially because he wasn't able to get anything done. Uh, so they mainly just yelled about the corrupt bargain, uh, claimed that he was the uh, he had been a pimp for the czar <laughs> yes. when he was the minister czar's of Russia, right? Yep, uh, and that he was uh, corrupt, just sort and not in any just specific generalized sense, corruption because he wasn't. But just like, look, he's around all those bank people. You, you know, know what you happens. Know, they're all they're all doing it. They did the bargain. You know what it's like. And so it was slander, invective, and personal uh, uh, cult of personality around Jackson himself, which a lot of the old Republicans even were very worried about. They did not like seeing Jackson just show up, a man on a horse, without any real political uh, guiding stars. He was not intellectual. He had no like record really in politics of, of policies. He was just like this raw expression of frontier hostility to any constraint. He was a Chad. And he was a Chad. And these guys were all be- fucking virgins. And, and even the even the Republicans were like, oh, boy, <laughs> a little scared here. And then the ones who were most scared started fleeing to Clay as the alternative. You know, as we see the degeneration of this first generation of, of party operatives and party itself into this hollow husk of, of what had once been, you know, 20 years earlier, a, a vibrant opposing consensus of the Federalists, uh, it's important to note that Jackson also represents a kind of rebirth of a Washington-like figure. He's a, yep. a syncretic figure that combines this martial vigor uh, with the the values of the yeoman farmer. He is somebody who people feel that can represent them, not just in a spiritual way, but through strength and, and, and power to execute a vision. Yep. You could say that, like, in the absence of any presiding authority that, that the people, broadly said in the U.S., would uh, give abeyance to, would, would bow down to. Like, you could argue that in that state where there is no one who you can accept or no institution that you could accept to be like a permanent uh, uh, position of, of authority over you, then over time, you just have to find one of the strongest, biggest dudes and put him in charge. To, to deal with that, uh, the, the pressures that that creates. And so you have this cyclical yearning for a, a redemptive figure to come in and, and reconsecrate uh, the, the, the uh, struggle. Uh, it's like a permanent revolution, really, among the yeomen. Mm-hmm. John Quincy Adams, after losing the presidency and going back to Massachusetts, was asked by a faction of... Uh, former Federalist Republicans in Massachusetts, the ones who weren't still holding a grudge from the old days of the embargo, to run for Congress. And he ran, and he won. And he, for the next 16 years, he was a member of Congress, the only president to uh, hold that office after their term. Uh, and he spent his time being uh, a gadfly of the new democracy. He sat there uh, just saying, hey, you're going to kill everybody if you keep going. You're going to do kill it. You're going you're, you're gonna to kill democracy by having to kill all those people. You know, the, the, these, like the violence of these institutions is going to come back if you keep doing that. We're going to have a civil war if you don't. Three fisc- really? Uh, more slave land? Are you sure? Uh, and he was just a nuisance. He was just whipping around. Uh, he famously uh, represented the Amistad. Yes rebel slaves in court in front of the, uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, he was a champion of the lifting of the gag rule, which in the antebellum Congress had been instituted to prevent 
the uh, acceptance, the pre- the presentation of abolitionist petitions and any discussion of abolitionism on the floor of the House. And he would periodically get up and say, hey, uh, we're not able to talk about the biggest issue facing the country. And he didn't get anything done there <laughs> any more than he had uh, as president, but he annoyed a lot of people. Uh, he certainly called a lot of shots about where America was going to head. And he actually died in his seat in the House of Representatives. I mean, that's that's pretty baller behavior. It's strictly pimpish behavior yes. to do that, I have to say. He definitely redeemed himself at the end there. Maybe not efficacy, but uh, general gadfly in Congress afterwards. And also representing yep. the Amistad slaves is a, is a pretty uh, uh, good move as well. Yep. And uh, I must uh, say that he collapsed of a hemorrhage on the floor of the House on February 21st, 1848, while the House was discussing whether or not uh, army officers who had served in the Mexican-American War, which Quincy Adams had bitterly opposed, uh, be honored by Congress. Uh, and while everyone else was saying aye, he got up and said no. <laughs> and then in the middle of a harangue, he had a cerebral hemorrhage uh, and died two days later in the Capitol building. Died disrespecting the troops. Yep. And uh, I will say that among the people who were there uh, at his death, Congress people was a young Whig Whig congressman from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln. Interesting foreshadowing, indeed. We'll get to, we'll get to the the many uh, interactions that um, a young Mister Lincoln had with former presidents uh, in the future. Yes, he is he is a fascinating zealot figure in that way. Well, that wraps up uh, the story of the era of good feelings, which then turns into the era of bad vibes, and the figure that. All of that entire era lands on the shoulders of John Quincy Adams, a man of noble intentions, but who simply cannot overcome the lack of means of execution that a presidency without consensus provides. Yeah, it turns out that it's not about virtue. Uh, He really should have known that, honestly, when he uh, was brought in as uh, Secretary of State and his first job really was to uh, issue a... A report to Congress about whether or not the U.S. should adopt the metric system or stick with the imperial. Oh God, if, oh God and, if he only had just won uh, this John one Quincy fight. Adams threw himself into this job. He, he, he spent a long time. He wrote a huge, uh, very dense, well-reasoned, well-written pe- report to Congress uh, where he recommended uh, not adopting metric system, but uh, uh, modifying the uh, continental, uh, the imperial system, the classic compromise seeking behavior. That sounds even worse. And nobody cared. They were like, "What did you? What? This was like supposed to be three pages, dude. What are you? <laughs> what are you talking about?" And they and he was he was um, uh, consoled by someone who said, "They're not used to anything that good. It's okay. Don't worry about it." <laughs> and as we end this episode, looking forward, uh, when we first mentioned Andrew Jackson back in the Battle of New Orleans, you probably noticed the Jaws theme music under there. Because that is the turn that is happening here, away from this end of the original generation of American founders into the next stage of American evolution, the formation of the second party system. This turn towards in the birth of what can be recognized as some sort of national populism as a political force in the country, and the setting up of the next series of battles that will define the American political discourse for the central part of the 19th century. All embodied in this figure, this towering ornery figure filled with bullet shards of Andrew Jackson. So when we pick up next week, we will start, of course, 
with a gigantic block of cheese. Hell of Presidents is produced by me, Chris Wade, with our talented co-producer, Nick Quaz. Our theme music is by Nick Diamonds, who has a great new album called Islomania out now as his band Islands. You should check it out. Our show art is by the great Branson Reese, who you can find over at the Rude Tales of Magic podcast. And we'll talk to you next week for the Red Fox of Kinderhook. Kinderhook.